Uh, my name is uh, Peter Whitelock, pastor at the Lafayette Arinda Presbyterian Church in the San Francisco Bay Area and a trustee here at the seminary. And it's an honor and a privilege to be able to introduce my fellow trustee, Dr. Stephen Yamaguchi, uh, who is the distinguished alumni for the seminary this year. And that award is given to the person who exemplifies the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ in their life and ministry. And uh, the Steve Yamaguchi that I've come to know over the years uh, very much exemplifies uh, those values. Uh, it's been a privilege to serve with him not only on the board here, but we actually met and became acquainted uh, serving on the board of, of another seminary uh, on the other coast in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, it was there <laughs> that shall go unnamed. I don't know. <laughs> and it was there that I, I really became acquainted with uh, his, his wisdom and his kindness and his thoughtfulness and uh, just always a pleasure to uh, engage and to be part of, of conversations, uh, particularly of a critical and an important nature. Uh, since uh, Attending here and graduating with his Master's of Divinity, Steve has had a, a truly remarkable and diverse career, uh, really quite entrepreneurial. He served as a pastor, assistant pastor in Tokyo at the Union Church and also in Long Beach. And uh, there was involved in, in renewal and revitalization congregational ministry that was nationally recognized and uh, exceedingly well accomplished in that regard. And then uh, he worked with uh, another pastor, Steve Wirth, uh, to engineer a a merger of two congregations coming from very different racial ethnic backgrounds. And Steve Worth, who was the uh, pastor who did that work with uh, Steve, uh, sends his regards and uh, uh, acknowledgement of this award, Steve. And he wanted me to tell you how much he appreciated Steve's uh, openness and fairness, uh, especially during those negotiations and in building and establishing that church that is still vital and thriving uh, to this day. Uh, from there, uh, Steve received the sentence, or answered the call, we're not sure, to be the executive presbyter at uh, Los Ranchos Presbytery. And there he was, uh, he was acknowledged, and, and this work even drifted north to us in the San Francisco Bay Area, for uh, how uh, the presbytery and congregational ministry can be more missionally effective in a changing culture, some, some truly remarkable and outstanding work there. And he shepherded that presbytery through a very difficult season. Uh, maybe something that we will refer to as the queen uh, did to some difficulties in England at one point is the recent unpleasantness. But uh, in that process, uh, he was fair to both sides and uh, sought to seek reconciliation and a capacity to move forward. He then moved on to be the Dean of uh, Students and Assistant Professor of Pastoral Theology and Chaplain at uh, another California seminary of uh, some repute, uh, Fuller Theological Seminary. And uh, the Mark Laberton, the, the president there, uh, wanted to also extend his congratulations, Steve, and to make sure that you all understood how expansive Steve's view of the gospel is, the deep joy that he brings to faith, and that uh, his understanding of the gospel, and only a seminary president can speak like this, is both cosmic and internal. <laughs> and he said, Steve, you have an ocean for a soul. And I thought that was wonderful and so accurate. He's currently the transitional pastor at the historic Emanuel Presbyterian Church in Los Angeles. I could go on uh, in extolling his virtues. His vita runs about 10 pages, and I'm not making that up. 
with his accomplishments and publications and the courses that he has taught. He lives with his wife, Allison, in Long Beach, along with their dog, Kuma. They have two adult daughters. So Stephen, congratulations and welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Peter, and uh, thank you to President Barnes and the Alumni Association Executive Council for this honor and this invitation, and thanks also to my friend Anne Henley Saunders, our new alumni director, and I'm so excited that she's in this role. And she's in, been so supportive and such a good friend during my perplexity over this distinguished <laughs> alumnus thing. <laughs> President Barnes called in September. And he said, could I have a few minutes? I have something I want to ask. And I, I was a new trustee on the board, and I thought, surely this is board business. And he said, I have a message from the Alumni Association Executive Council. They would like me to extend this uh, invitation. They would like you to accept the award as Distinguished Alumnus. And I started laughing. <laughs> because I, and I said, that's silly. <laughs> I've been on the Alumni Association Executive Council, and I've, I've been a part of decisions of the people we choose for these awards, and, and there's a certain kind of person that does this. And I, I've nominated one, um, and I, uh, in the recent years, I think about the previous recipients, a, a U.S. Navy Rear Admiral and a president of a seminary and uh, founders of movements that became, uh, that had global impact. and. And it happened that President Barnes caught me at a certain moment. I, I was preparing for a hiking vacation in Utah. So I literally was going to Zion. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I needed a refreshing break because it had been a difficult August. Uh, I was 11 months into a very rough interim pastorate. A few weeks earlier, the Presbytery had replaced the session with an administrative commission. At the same time, they had removed me as the moderator of session. <laughs> it got really quiet, didn't it? <laughs> now you're wondering, should we have gone to coffee this morning? <laughs> A few months earlier, this bilingual congregation, Spanish-English, was experimenting with worship formats and this day, it was this particular Sunday in Atlanta, it was my time to preach in Spanish in the large space. We have three worship spaces. One holds about 170, the medium holds about 400, and the large one holds about 1,800. And at 10.30, I rose to deliver the call to worship in the large space in Spanish to one person. <laughs> More people drifted in later, and, and it started to fill up a little. But the, the sight of that one man and 1,799 empty seats is seared in my memory. So distinguished alumnus, <laughs> For eight months now, I have pondered, what is it that makes us distinguished? When I left Princeton Seminary, I was full of hope and full of myself. <laughs> I declined an offer to study here and to teach. A professor wanted me to stay and work on a PhD with that professor and teach in their department. It was very tempting, but as it was, God was calling me to Grace, to Grace Presbyterian Church. 
And uh, it was in the town of Paramount. But it began in 1925 as the Japanese language mission of the Los Angeles Presbytery. And it grew until 1942. This is the photo in 1928 of the Sunday School. In 1942, people had to leave Southern California. They had to actually go to prison camps. Uh, and so the church was uh, not functioning as a church. It became a boys club. And the people didn't get the building back, actually, until 1949. But after the war, like so many of our Presbyterian churches and mainline churches, the church grew and grew through the 60s with a baby boom, and in 68 hit its peak and has declined since and was declining precipitously in the 1980s. By 1987, the neighborhood had become so dangerous, uh, this neighborhood, and the congregation was so weak that um, they, they fled the neighborhood. And they moved to a building that the Presbytery had in Paramount, nine miles to the north, to an abandoned Presbyterian church building. So when I graduated in 1988, they were down to 25 very tired worshipers in a dilapidated building. It was the ugliest church building I've ever worked in. It was located on Compton Boulevard on the east edge of Compton. And Chris Lenneker remembers because we were in the same presbytery and neighbors um, during the boom of crack wars on our streets on Compton <clears throat> Boulevard. The year before, in 1986, Paramount was named in the, in the list of most livable cities in the country Paramount was one of the 10 worst cities in the country to live in. And in 1988, this was my call. I felt noble. I thought I could help save this church. And I had a lot to learn. But I had learned much in seminary. I was armed with a love for Greek that President Gillespie inspired in me in his Galatians class. I don't remember the details of the North and South Galatian theories, but I do still use that Greek every time I, I preach from the New Testament. I was gifted by Professor Jane Douglas, who helped me rethink Japanese American history by always asking the question, where are the voices of those who are not in the text because they're not the ones writing the history? By my second Sunday at the church, I knew almost all 25 people by name because 13 of them were on the pastor nominating committee. <laughs> but that morning from the pulpit, it just, it just smacked me between the eyes. I looked out, and just like my parents, almost all of the congregation had been incarcerated by their own government in in horrible landscapes with no due process, no real accusations but suspicion. They lost everything. They were exiled, and they were getting older, and they'd never reflected on this theologically and biblically. So I had my marching orders right there. So I pulled out my Hebrew tools got to work, and we explored stories of exodus and exile and captivity, stories of how God is with God's people even when they are in loss, when they are in exile. And it was a profound theological reorientation for a congregation. 
In America, our people, and by that I mean Japanese American people, had been made to feel ashamed of their Japanese culture. They had learned, actually, that to be accepted in the majority white culture, it was an advantage to us to try to act white in work, in school, even in church, even in the Presbyterian church. At this particular congregation, everything of value had been stolen. Uh, office equipment, even the communion set had been stolen. Now, what do you do with little stolen communion cups? I don't know. But if you see someone on the street and they walk up to you and go, hey, want to buy some communion cups? <laughs> um, let me know. I noticed when I visited people in their homes, these older Japanese-American people, their homes looked like my grandmother's home. And on the dining table, there was not a silver platter, but there were stacked lacquer boxes, jubako, we call them in Japanese. Uh, I have a sample of one right here. And so there came a moment when we needed new communion ware, and I just went ahead and did it. I went and bought some sets of jubako and use them for the bread at communion. And that first Sunday, people walked into the sanctuary and looked and went, oh, is that OK to do? <laughs> and proudly, with my theological, liturgical education, <laughs> I said, yes, it absolutely is. I believe that Jesus would do this if he were here. We also made, uh, we had cups commissioned that are designed for the chalice based on the design of a Japanese tea ceremony cup. They're actually made by uh, Reverend Sasha Makovkin, who was the artist in residence here at Princeton, 88 to 89. Um, as our church embraced our identity and our history as Japanese American people, as exiled people, we began to attract many different kinds of people who actually felt exiled and marginalized. So it became this remarkable group of kind of outcasts and oddballs and others who weren't but wanted to be with outcasts and oddballs. <laughs> and uh, the church was growing. And, and by all metrics, in a few years, it had doubled and quadrupled in size. And several years earlier, the church had been tagged by the Presbytery as a redevelopment congregation. This was supposed to be a great boost because the, there would be extra attention and supposedly funds, which it turned out there were not. But after three years, I called the Presbytery office and I said, hey, you know, I, I think we're redeveloped. <laughs> how, how do you get off the list? I will never forget our associate executive Presbyter's answer because he said, I don't know, it's never happened before. <laughs> and Redevelopment actually was a euphemism for terminal. But we made up this ceremony, and it was like a burn the mortgage thing. We burned the redevelopment contract, and uh, the church continued to grow. The church was thriving, and the pastor was dying. Um, I had graduated from seminary with a big bag of tricks. But my bag was empty. And I finally had to come to terms with my own alcoholism. 
And it wasn't even the drinking that was killing me. It was just the sheer energy it took not to drink. It took every bit of spiritual energy I had, and I was losing the fight, and I could see it. I was emotionally and spiritually wrecked. But by God's grace, a new guy had joined the church, became a deacon, and he shared in his story about his experience in AA, and he invited me to meetings, and I held him at arm's length, and he saw right through me, but he was very patient and persistent. And one day I tricked myself into going. When he asked me again, I thought, consciously, I thought, I bet I could help them. <laughs> I, I'm a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary. I could be their chaplain. So I said, I'll come, Ray. And I went to the meeting, and I heard my story in every one of their stories, no matter where they come from. And I, I devoured the big book that night, and I discovered I have something that explains me. And I have a people. And there's something I can do about this. And it began a remarkable, remarkable journey of spiritual revitalization. Not knowing any better, so enthusiastic, after two weeks, I stepped into the pulpit. As an example of how emotionally messed up I was and out of touch with reality, it didn't occur to me that this was Mother's Day. I stepped into the pulpit and began my sermon enthusiastically declaring, hi, my name's Steve, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> it was so quiet. <laughs> Never heard it that quiet there. It threw the congregation into confusion, and in my self-centeredness, I was oblivious to what I had done to the church. But it turns out I was in just the right church. I thought I had come to save them. But they helped to save me, because I was in a church full of people who knew what it was to lose everything, to despair in hopelessness, and to rebuild from nothing. They were black belts at this. They were Jedi. <laughs> God had called me to exactly the right place for my healing. And it took a few years of extensive spiritual direction and psychotherapy and psychiatric treatment and meds and and AA, which has worked for me. For me, it's been like the gospel for dummies. 12 steps that helped me experience so palpably the love of Jesus I had talked about, taught about, studied, could write and preach about. I still attend. My home group is in Compton. This Easter was my 25th birthday. And I am so grateful to be an alcoholic. Thank you. Um, so I want to tell you a fishing story. A few years ago, an orthodontist in our church, our orthodontist, took me on a trip up to northwest British Columbia to the most beautiful fishing I've ever experienced. Um, it, was, it was the most beautiful fishing day I've ever experienced. We're spay casting, this Scottish technique, two-handed. Oh, thank you. And it was my day to be alone with a guide. 
just the guide and I, standing this deep on this beautiful river, 100 feet wide, gray skies overhead with bald eagles soaring in the air. In the woods off the banks, we could hear and sometimes see moose rustling in the woods. There, were, there was a fox playing on the shore behind us. The guide said, hey, look, fox. There were bears lying up the stream. And it, it was the most beautiful, idyllic fishing day I've ever had. It was a glorious day. I will always remember it. But that evening, I went back to the lodge. We went back to the lodge, and at dinner time, the chef at the lodge had prepared this beautiful meal, and I was in my bunk retching. I was just sick, and I didn't know what was wrong with me. And the, the group, little group of us, six Japanese and Japanese-American doctors and this poor pastor who got brought along as a gift, one doctor from Japan looked at me and said, I think you're dehydrated. And I thought, how could I be dehydrated? <laughs> I was standing in water all day. It was raining on me all day long. I was surrounded by water. I had a bottle of water in my chest waders. And then it occurred to me that I, you know, I, I didn't drink all day. And what struck me about that is that that really was my pastoral experience also. I had become a master at serving water at teaching about water, helping other people to drink water. I just didn't know how to drink, uh, not for myself. And the 12 steps helped me learn to drink and helped me realize that you can be surrounded by water and dying of thirst, which is a peril that all of us face in our ministry, I think, as we, are, as we serve the living water. That church let me stay for 10 more years, and they helped me begin to grow up. And as I have, uh, I've reflected on this journey, and I, so I began to think that I think that what distinguishes me in ministry and us in ministry is not, it's not really me, it's not myself, it's not ourselves, but it's the people that I'm called to serve. That, that distinguish us. I think we're distinguished by loving the particular people we serve. After 15 years as a pastor in that presbytery, I was asked to be the executive presbyter. And it was a, it was a fun job, challenging, rewarding. The best part was starting new ministries and supporting new, young pastors and candidates to do creative, crazy things and validating ministries that that many people would think were just too off the wall, and pushing polity to its limits for, for, for missional purpose. It, that was the best part. And then I was called to be the dean of students at, and an assistant professor of pastoral theology at Fuller. And it was an exciting time. It was like uh, a whole new world. Um, and I had a 27-mile commute, and I figured out how to do it by bicycle. People in LA, they're not so impressed that you rode 27 miles, it's that you could find a way to ride across <laughs> Los Angeles. But I found a route down the LA River. It was awesome. I, I, it was like I restarted my life at 60. But in some ways, the work at Fuller, it just wasn't the best fit for me. I longed to be a 
pastor again. And for 11 years, I had supported, as an EP, I'd supported pastors and cared for them and poured out my life to make their lives of pastoral ministry better. And then for four years as a dean and a professor, I was training pastors and teaching candidates, pouring out my life to help make their lives of pastoral ministry better. And after 15 years as an administrator, I prayed, God, could I be a pastor again in a congregation? And for 15 years, people said constantly, oh, you do the executive work or you do the dean's work so pastorally. You're such a good pastor. I finally did notice after 15 years that no one ever said, you're such a good administrator. <laughs> so I prayed. I prayed for three things. Three things that might be in the church that I might get to serve. One, that it would be in the heart of a city, I, a very urban city. I grew up in the city. I love the city. So I interviewed in several churches across the country. Two, that I might serve a congregation that was at the end of its rope, that was on the brink of death, that, that was almost out of business. But three, and very related to two, that the congregation would admit that it was at the end of its rope and be open to God doing some wild resurrection thing like they'd never seen before. That's a pretty 12-steppy kind of view of church life, but that's where I'm coming from. I dearly love big cities, and I have watched big old Presbyterian churches in downtowns decline until they are sold off. There are a few exceptions, like my friend Michael Linval has pastor. But um, I think we desperately need new models and new stories and new imagination. Or we will lose, and we will continue to abandon our mission and lose our place in our old downtowns. And so I ended up at Emmanuel Presbyterian Church in the heart of Los Angeles. It is exactly one mile from where I was born. It's just a few miles north of where I grew up in Los Angeles, South Central Los Angeles. It's in Koreatown. Within a two-mile radius from the church reside 376,000 people. Three miles, it's 637,000 people. 25% are Asian ancestry in Koreatown. 61% are Hispanic Latinx. The church is this cathedral that seats 1,800 was built by the wealthy and powerful of Los Angeles in the 1920s. And today there are a few with some power and privilege, but there are many more people now with far fewer resources, some without homes, some without documentation, some without fitting into a gender binary, some without family. The church board and the church session was so tired. They had been barely hanging on. So many things had been neglected in the session, just did not have the capacity to make decisions anymore. They were stuck. And the session was at odds with the staff. The church was at the end of its rope. But one of the gifts of the presbytery was to come alongside the congregation with this blue ribbon administrative commission. And they came alongside just to help and to support, not to take over, but just, just to be an encouragement. And, and, and practical support. 
They were super competent and generous with their time and so helpful. They were all ministers and elders from other churches. And for nine months, they walked alongside Emmanuel, providing love and support. But after my first nine months, I could not see a way forward in this church. So I told the session, I can't renew my 12-month annual contract if we can't find a way to be freed from this paralysis. And this concerned them. They called the Presbytery for help, and the Presbytery came alongside and helped them ask for help. So the session asked to be relieved of their duty. And the Presbytery agreed and asked this blue ribbon team alongside if they would become the session. And each one to a person, although they didn't sign up for this, they all agreed. And so with a flick of a switch, we went from a paralyzed session to the most amazing competent session I have ever worked with. Plus, though, to give me a spell of relief in that season, the Presbytery also provided a gifted moderator for the session so I could get out of that fire for a while. And this person has become a dear friend and colleague. And our session meetings have gone from being excruciating and acrimonious to being invigorating and fun and, and filled with laughter and hope. It is uh, it, it's quite an amazing thing. There have been many, many painful choices we've had to make in this process, and the church is reeling from loss. But we're getting to a sustainable place. We're actually making progress, and the possibilities in this neighborhood are, are unlimited. Our neighbors experiencing homelessness are, are transforming from being recipients of handouts that they were to becoming leaders in the church's ministry. <coughs> Beloved members of the community were engaging local artists with our beautiful space and, and filmmakers and, and we're rebuilding a new community of worship and faith and mission and it is the hardest thing I've ever done. It is. But it is the most fun I've ever had. I have never had more fun. I drive into the center of LA from my home in Long Beach, and I just get giddy when I get near the church. So thankful to be in the city, to be in this ministry, to be in this place. But distinguished. <laughs> when, when the session got replaced, and I got removed as moderator of session. Is this the stuff of distinguished alumni? <laughs> so I want to share just one more story with you that helps me understand what I believe it is that makes us distinguished. What makes each of us, you and me, the distinguished ministers and alumni that you and I are? I never wanted to go to Arkansas. I'd intended to avoid it all my life. To me, Arkansas meant suffering, deprivation, shame, and death. Because it was where the prison camps were, where my mother lived during World War II. But two years ago, I was invited to join the faculty of the Presbyterian Credo Program, which has been a tremendous gift. And my first conference was to be at the center in Little Rock, Arkansas. So I decided to bite the bullet. And I went 
three days early to Little Rock. And I was going to go visit the place where my mother lived. So um, one historical point, my mom in 1942 had to report for camp on four days notice, had to liquidate everything and show up not knowing where they were going or how long they would be gone. And they had to report on the day before Easter. They drove their own car to the Santa Anita racetrack where they lived in horse stalls for six months. At the peak of the summer, in the summer heat, there were 19,000 Japanese American people living in the Santa Anita racetrack in Arcadia, California. After six months of living in the horse stalls, they were shipped by old trains pulled out of mothballs to Arkansas. And now I was going to Arkansas to a little town called McGee, which is between where the two camps were. About 30 miles apart, McGee's right in the middle. There's a little museum there that I went to visit on a Saturday morning. And then I visited the campsites. Now, it happened that the Credo Conference was beginning the day after Easter. So I was in McGee the day before Easter, 75 years after my mothership <coughs> reported. I went and visited the campsite. Um, there's a cemetery there that is still preserved. And I walked through the cemetery and amazed that I was even there, I simply read out loud everything that was on each headstone, which was just names, birth, and death dates. I read them all in Japanese, prayed for each person, and then I just laid myself down on the ground, looking up at the sky for I have no idea how long. And I, I wept and I prayed. And then I got in my rental car and called my mom and said, you're not going to believe where I am, but I think I'm right near your block at Roar at the camp. And she confirmed that that was where she lived. I drove around the property, which is just fields now, except for a little residential street that was built on the former prison campsite. And there was a Kelso Baptist Church there. And the sign said, Kelso Baptist Church, worship at 10.55 AM. That just caught my attention. I thought, 10.55? It, it was a permanent sign. I, OK. So the next morning, I uh, woke up and worshiped at the First Presbyterian Church of McGee. And uh, it took about 45 minutes. And by 10 o'clock, I was uh, free. Everybody had worshiped and gone home on Easter. So I thought, I have time to go to Kelso Baptist Church, which meets at 10.55. <laughs> so I jumped in my car, drove out to the campsite, and I was thinking, I want to hear the resurrection <laughs> proclaimed on this property. So I showed up. and was greeted, and during the passing of the peace time, a couple of women approached me and said, hi, what are you doing? How are you? What brings you here? And I said, well, my mother used to live here. 
And they, they, they smiled and they said, oh, we, we thought that might be why you're here. We're so glad you're here. And after worship, they found me and we talked and talked and got to know each other and shared stories. And after everyone else had gone home to Easter dinner, they stayed for an hour with me. And they, they explained the camp space to me. And it turns out it was a mother and a daughter. And the mother had married into the family that has the farm right next to the cemetery outside the camp. And they became friends. And I was so grateful for that encounter and to, to worship with Christians and to hear that story. Uh, and I went back to McGee that evening and I treated myself to dinner at the only restaurant open in McGee, which was Subway. <laughs> Subway with a pizza hut in it. And uh, I was thankful for that meal and that day. And in the morning, my phone rang and it was the daughter. She says, have you gone to Little Rock yet? My mom has something she wants to give you. And so, I said, no, I'm still here. I'll, can we meet you at the cemetery? OK, I'll, I'll, I'll come. So I got in my car, drove to the cemetery, and the mother was there. And she had a, a notebook of papers. And she said, my mother wants to give this to you. And the mother, Trish, said, these are pictures and articles I've been collecting about the camp for years. We've always wondered what happened to those people. And we're so glad to know you. And I want to give these to you to give to your mother. I want your mother to have them. And then she said, I bought some pans from my neighbor at a yard sale. And the neighbor got them from the kitchen in the camp. And I bought three of them. But I gave two to the museum. And I said, I saw them in the museum. I remember these two aluminum bowls. And she says, yes, I bought three, and I kept one. But I want you to have one. So this is it. This bowl was used to serve my mother and her family in a prison camp in Arkansas. But it has become for me a symbol of, of redemption and, um, and God's grace. And I took this with me to the Cradle Conference. And when we had communion, we used this as the pattern, actually. We served the bread from this after I had explained the story of the bowl. And we've used it also for the bread at the table at Emmanuel now. What strikes me is that this seems to me very much like Paul's image in 2 Corinthians 4 of this treasure we have in earthen vessels. And what distinguishes this aluminum bowl is the story of where it's been, and, and the people it has served, and the suffering it has known, the suffering it's seen, and the gifts that it bears. And so last night, yesterday evening, uh, in the president's residence at Spring Hill, uh, Mrs. Barnes and I baked cookies. <laughs> and uh, I want you to have cookies that uh, we baked. And I want, but I want you to handle this bowl. I want you to receive this. So we can just pass that around. And when it empties, we'll refill it. <coughs> and so this, my friends, I think is what distinguishes each of us, you and me, 
as alumni of this blessed place. It is where you have been and the suffering you have seen and the people you have served and the gifts that you bear that make you and me distinguished by the grace of God. So I want to say thank you too, distinguished alumni, faithful servants, fellow ministers. And I would also like to offer you this blessing. Es, es bueno que recordar que Dios no nos dio la Biblia en inglés, ¿sí? It is good to remember that God did not give us the Bible in English. <laughs> so I would like you to receive this blessing of grace and love and communion. But I'd like us to hear it first in Greek and then in English. But then in Korean, a language which I don't speak, but I learned this simply by rote out of love and respect for a community of Christians who have suffered over the past century at the hands of my ancestors' imperial occupation. And then in Spanish, in the language where I'm preaching now, amazingly, es como un milagro del Espíritu Santo. Es como Pentecostes, no? It's like this Pentecostal miracle that's happening there. And then finally in Japanese, in the language that I pronounced every week for 15 years over this beloved community. So, Hekaris tu kuyu Yesu Christu, kaihe agape tu theu, kaihe koinonia tu hagiu pneumatas, metapanton humo. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Ju Jesu Christo et dola un unhewa, hananime akimum nun sarangwa, sungjunge chimilhan saguimi, yorubum modua hamke hagirul paramnida. Entonces, que la gracia del Señor Jesucristo y el amor de Dios y la comunión del Espíritu Santo sean con todos ustedes. Negawakua, Shuyes Cristo no megumi, Chichinaru kami no go ai, Seire no majiwari toga, Anatagata ichido to tomuni aru yo ni. Amen. Amen.